Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about a trio of films by Louis Ospina, uh-huh. who you may never have heard of and I hadn't heard of, and I think it's a real indictment of cinema culture, really, that I hadn't, because he's clearly a major figure in a major movement in Colombian cinema over the last sort of 50 years. Yes, and in Latin American cinema more broadly. Yes. Yeah. Um, he's from Colombia, and uh, he was part of a group of filmmakers and artists that were known as Caliwood. Yes. Named after the city Cali, Santiago de Cali, in which they're based. Yes. Uh, which I think is the second city in Colombia. Uh, I think so. Bogota is the capital and yes. the major centre. Um, so, the three films that are on movie, one of them has just left, which was a short. Uh, the three films are The Vampires of Poverty, which is a short from 1977. Um, a major three and a half hour documentary from 2015 called It All Started at the End, which yeah. is still on and A Paper Tiger from 2007, mm. which is a mockumentary. And that's, of the three, that's the one I unfortunately wasn't able to make time for. But yes, you've I've seen it. Um, so this was, you know, you, you kind of brought this up. This is something you wanted to talk about. Yes, I wanted, to, I wanted to bring it up, I mean, for precisely the reasons that you mentioned. He died very recently, only a few weeks ago, which I think is part of the reason why Mubi, who is really excellent, has done this kind of, mini retrospective yeah it's, a, as an, it's an homage to him uh, and as soon as he died you know all my latin american friends kind of you know put rips and you know kind of a lot of people knew him personally i i had met him in fact you know when i was teaching in cuba but i don't know him um you know it was one of those things where actually you wish people were better mannered in an old-fashioned sense i mean better mannered everyone's very friendly but you know what i mean i feel like had i had i known of him <laughs> or had i known about him you know i would have kind of i don't know maybe done a podcast with him or, yeah you yeah. know but kind of when somebody introduces you jose this is luis or whatever you just say hello how are you blah blah nice <laughs> to meet you you know what i mean yeah. yeah kind of there's this thing where you wish people would do the old-fashioned thing and say something about you right you know Oh, in introducing you. In introducing you, yeah. So yeah. at least you have a basis of conversation, which is... But anyway, I'm rambling. <laughs> um, so, well, so... you're just showing off that you met him. Your well, mate. Well, Lewis. you can erase this part, because actually that's not at all important, and I didn't know him I know, at all. I know, really. I'm, I'm, I'm teasing. Uh, but anyway, I was, I was struck by this idea that, you know, there were all these people from, from all... Well, I wouldn't say all over the world, but all over the Spanish-speaking world, right... Uh, who were kind of mourning him and who were underlining the importance and what his films or his or himself personally had meant to them. And, you know, it just doesn't register with your English-speaking friends at all, right? Yeah. So kind of, you know, that was... I feel I've pushed this on you a little bit because I say we must cover no, this. No, no, well, I think... I mean, what I said at the start about this being an indictment of cinema culture that I hadn't heard of him, it's, it's equally an indictment of me, you know? I mean, it's, it's no one's fault really mine that I hadn't heard of him and that I should have. No, no, but, but I think, you know... There are what, structural things. It's not, I, I think it's what, not I, what I sort of said to the other day is that um, Caliwood seems to be, from the little I know about it now, the kind of equivalent uh, in sort of Colombia or maybe more, more widely in Latin America of, like, the French New Wave. But the thing is, we, I, I've heard of Godard, I've heard of Truffaut, I've heard of the various figures in the French New Wave. And I think widely in cinema culture... Most people, at the very least, as you suggest, in the English-speaking world, would not have heard of Louis Ospina. Yes, 
I mean, the reason why I wanted to talk about them as well is because it also reminded me a little bit of, uh, you know, where I grew up in Canada, in Montreal, right? Because I think there is also an aspect of colonization, mm-hmm. right? And I think it kind of, you know, in, 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 in Canada, we were very much a colonized culture, i.e., you know, by America culturally, right? Like kind of, you know, we watched American television, we heard American music, right? Like, yeah. you know, actually for the film market, you know, the U.S. and Canada are considered one, right? So when you get the figures for, you know, what a film did in the U.S., it's really the U.S. and Canada. I mean, Canada is just erased, right? Yeah. So, but but what watching these films, Ospina's films, reminded me of is, you know, kind of the way that places mythologize their history, but also the, the, the positive aspects of that. Yeah, how things often come to be through a group of friends meeting and doing things, right? You know, that is one of the messages that you get from um, it all began at the end, yeah? Um, yeah, it all starts at the it end. It all starts at the end, Yeah, right? You know, because really, that is what it was. It's a, it's a group of friends who meet each other. You know, they share, they share a set of interests, which involve painting and poetry, but also kind of filmmaking, right? And a kind of a hippie-ish kind of uh, um, set of values uh, uh, and they decide to do things together and these the, these things that they end up doing together uh, you know as friendship networks then end up being you know very important kind of culturally you know and then kind of build up a history within that culture you know and I see those patterns actually kind of occurring everywhere Really? Well, it reminded me of you, in a sense, uh, and I thought that may have been one of your interests in it, because you speak about growing up in Canada and uh, editing Cinema Canada. Well, actually, this is the Montreal Mirror that I think I was telling you about, Right. you know, where kind of a group of friends got together and, we, you know, we started this magazine and how that really impacted the culture and actually, you know, kind of it had an impact on the music being made because, you know, it was covered and, you know, cinema was very important to it. You know, I think we were one of the first people to actually have a gay listing, you know, what was happening kind of, you know, that was queer in Montreal. Uh, so, so the, I, the, and definitely we were all, you know, there were large friendship circles that arose out of that uh, and that ended up kind of doing lots of things. But, but I didn't have that in mind, actually. What I had in mind was if you look at, you know, Quebecois cinema, mm-hmm. right? The place is so small. They all knew each other. They often collaborated on each other's films, you know, kind of uh, the National Film Board of Canada was a nexus for all of these kind of different people, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah. So the sense that, you know, because we tend to look at history structurally, right? And in doing so, which, you know, we should, I mean, don't get me wrong. But on the other hand, we forget that, you know, individuals make a difference, yeah. right? And this is kind of one of those instances where, you know, you see how Carlos Maiolo becoming friends with Luis Ospina at the time that they did as children, you know, and then getting together with uh, uh, Andres Caicedo, uh, Caicedo, you know, it created this culture, right? And it was a culture that kind of went through cinema, uh, but also music and poetry and indeed novels and criticism of all of these things, right? So I thought that was kind of fascinating, really. Yeah. Um, I, I I have some criticism of the film, though, as a film, because I, as much as I feel I learned from it about 
the people. It was about the movement. It was about the time and place and history. Mm. Um, I also found it a very boring film. And I think that, uh, to some degree, a pre-existing knowledge of or interest in what it's talking about is kind of a prerequisite to really enjoying it. I think that that may be true. It felt more almost like a behind-the-scenes thing in a way. like Because uh, from the start, I approached it as cinema. Um, and it starts off with Ospina... Uh, in hospital, yes, um, with a, a gist, which I think is kind of similar to a tumor, mm. um, and there's and there's a very long. It's almost like home video kind of kind of montage thing for maybe forty minutes of him in hospital going through various tests and also talking about growing up and things before it gets into um, uh, a kind of dinner party with all his old friends that kind of structures the rest of the film and they right. and they reminisce. But so at the start, I was kind of thinking, oh, this is about death. This is about looking back. This is about kind of pro- the pro- proximity to death. That he's closer to the end of his life than the start. And there's a kind of there's also an elegiac tone because he starts to talk about Andres Caicedo yes. and Carlos Mayola who died. Yes. Um, and so there's a kind of looking back on on them and that that structures it. But I I I did find it sort of boring filmmaking, I suppose. Uh, maybe that's maybe oh. that just sounds too crass and unfair. But once I started to approach it more as a kind of uh, I, I suppose like a TV documentary almost then I started to enjoy it more because it, I, I approached it more as information about these people yes well it is that but it's also like I you know I I, I haven't seen any of these Hollywood films so I actually can't tell you you know whether they're any good or not the the only one that I suppose fits this category and uh, that I truly love is the Vampires of, of Poverty. Yeah, which is the show. Yeah, Pueblo, which I think is magnificent. Yeah, you know, and I think it's magnificent as cinema, as critique, you know, uh, and and we'll we'll talk about that, you know, a little bit. I think for me, like you know, in, in a way, you think, well, what is cinema in a way? Yeah. So, and I don't mind that uh, the film is rambly, uh, that it's kind of structured in the way that it is. Uh, that I don't know any of the people kind of involved. I mean, I feel that um, you learn about them, you know, and you learn to appreciate kind of what they did, you know, and you are looking on as an outsider, right? Um, but I think, you you know, you're learning about a culture and its changes, and there are things that, you know, A, make me very critical, and other things that really move me. I, I suppose the main strand or the, the important element that I want to underline is that I think from the beginning I really like being in these people's company yeah right kind of you know they're all smart they're all countercultural you know like they're taking their clothes off and smoking pot and you know and having fun and being playful and not taking anything too seriously mm-hmm. you know and kind of very much kind of on board with it with a spirit of exploration whilst Having a sense of humor that is constantly undermining itself because, you know, they realize, you know, that they're in Colombia, right? It's not Hollywood. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's Caliwood, right? So there's, you know, there's always this sense, oh, things arrive here three years later or, you know, kind of we're always the last to know this or whatever. Yeah. But actually kind of this attempt, you know, to find out about things, whether it's philosophy or politics or literature, to create it, you know, to, to say, I can also do this. Right, I think is really, and to do it with a sense, 
with a subversive sense of humor, you know, mm. kind of, uh, and also with a disregard for convention. I love all of that. I, I love the I love the playfulness of it. Yeah, and there's a sense also of black humor, kind of, mm. you know, that runs throughout. Uh, and there's a kind of a sense also of a kind of a, uh, scoriating might, might be too strong a word, but of pinpricking, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So of, of pinpricking kind of uh, uh, people's attitudes or, you know, kind of people's expectations or, you know, kind of one of the one of the recurring um, questions is, you know, kind of. Are they any good, right? Yeah, like kind of is this just having fun or kind of you know, are they actually contributing something? Right? Like, you know, there's a whole discussion in this film about, you know, Carlos Mayolo as a filmmaker at the end and they were saying, Well, you know, he's a filmmaker of genius in moments, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, so and these are the major figures, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think what you also get is is friendship and love. Yeah. You know, you sense that throughout you know, and I think it's beautiful. Yeah, and I think I, I think that's that's there from the moment that that they start speaking about Andres Caicedo, uh, who is the kind of first I, I think figure that the film kind of focuses on. Yes. And it, and he died many many years. He died in the nineteen seventies. Yes. Long before his time, he was twenty something, and there's talk about him as 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 a sort of um, incandescent genius mm. poetry and life and all the kind of stuff all the all the things that I guess you might expect people to like to remember him by but you know that 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 very early on infuses the film with that feeling of love yeah in fact that's where it picks up after you know after you start off with this long period of time spent in the hospital then the reminiscing kind of begins and and the film is injected I think with some life then when they yes. start speaking about Cosedo. so what the film shows us basically is um, these bourgeois kids, mm. right? You know, and I think I want to underline that, you know. Uh, so Ospina begins by saying, well, my, you know, my father sold swimming pools and we had a swimming pool. And, you know, so there's actually kind of footage of him as a child. Because his know, dad had a camera that he... As a teenager. A film camera. Yes. Uh, so, you know, these are... These are these are well-to-do kids, yeah, mm. and particularly considering the context where they're from, you know. So basically what happens is, at the very beginning of it, uh, one of them takes over one of the, uh, you know, houses that the family has unused, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, who has families that have houses unused, you know, and it kind of it looks like a mini mansion, right? So, and in this house, basically... They started a kind of commune of all of these different people who would subsequently become kind of major figures. Um, and, you know, they started a film club, yeah, uh, you know, showing films by Hitchcock and Buñuel and, you know, basically uh, the, the uh, Potemkin and uh, things like that. What, what you would expect people of that generation to show in a film club, but as a way of kind of, of, of loving cinema and of learning about cinema. Uh, it also had an art gallery, you know, uh, so uh, um, they lived communally. So they made art, they wrote, uh, um, they, they put out magazines uh, from there, right? Uh, and, you know, from that shared group of people who wrote and painted and, uh, uh, you know, watched film together came this nexus 
of people who began kind of making films together as well. Yeah. Uh, so, and um, the, so it's divided into sections, really. So the, the prologue and the epilogue are really about Ospina, you know, going into the hospital. It's quite urgent. He needs a major operation for cancer and he might not make it through. Uh, and then it's really divided into, you know, a section on Caicedo, yeah, where people begin going on the streets of present-day Colombia and asking, you know, mm. do you know who is Andres Caicedo? And basically, no, none of the people know. And yet, you know, he's one of the major writers who's been translated into English and French and, you know, all of these different languages. Uh, and... You know, he also lived that ethos of die young, leave a good-looking corpse, you know, <laughs> that was kind of part of the the James Dean to James Morrissey kind of rock and roll kind of dream. So basically, at the age of 25, he commits suicide. He's published one book. The day that the second book comes from press, his girlfriend has left him, and he kills himself. Uh, and it's only after he died that all of the rest of his books have been published. And so he is a major cultural figure. Uh, but on the other hand, pe- he's a major culture figure that people on the street don't know. Yeah. Right. So there's a whole evocation of, you know, what Caicedo represented, which is also a way into uh, seeing what other people did and contributed to, yeah, culturally that were around him. I think the film is very um, generous but it it also allows room for critique. It's very generous because it's about young people. It's about young people discovering things and being in love and having a good time, you know, and they're now all older and, you know, they speak very freely about, you know, desire and drugs and, you know, the kind of life that they lived then and they speak of it with a certain kind of nostalgia. Yeah, that kind of... Yeah, and humour. And humour. There's a kind of... Uh, the, I think it's Carlos Maiolo's wife certainly has a, has a, a real sense of humour about the kind of people they used to be and that were quite old now. Yes. Um, and she's lovely. Um, I, I, think they're, I think they're all lovely, but, you know, there, there are things that the film allows you to be troubled by, right? So in the episode with Caicedo, um, you know, he used to film... Uh, and hang out with uh, kids that were 13 and 14. You know, one of them, a young girl, you know, who was like, who didn't even have breasts yet, who was in the process of developing them, right? And they used to sleep together, yeah, the the filmer accounts. It's very Michael Jackson, or bordering on Michael Jackson, right? And then what's interesting is, you know, the filmmakers go to Barcelona, where this girl, well, now a middle-aged woman resides, And she says, well, people can think what they want, you know, but it was very lovely and innocent and emotional and beautiful, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so, uh, and pure and so on. So, um, you know, and nobody knows it like me because I lived it, right? So, so fair enough. But nonetheless, yeah, the idea that this 25-year-old is hanging out with a 13 or 14-year-old. Yeah, and the film doesn't censor it. It shows it to you and it shows it to you in a way that is quite beautiful, right? So, you know... Andres, who's very young himself, looks very beautiful. But these are street kids. There's a huge class difference, Mm. right? And then one of them is really in the process of puberty, 
right? Like, you know, this young girl is really like 13, mm. right? Like, I mean, and she says, mm. you know, uh, he bought me my first bra, you know, and it was like, well, I didn't even have tits yet. I was growing them, she says, right? So it's a disturbing element. Yeah. yeah. But I think the film allows you, allows you to see it and to think about it without condemning it. Yeah. Mm. Like the film itself doesn't condemn it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it takes it at face value. Yeah. Maybe, you know, part of the innocence or, yeah, the kind of that uh, uh, Caicedo, yeah, evokes for all of these people. Um, I think certainly what all of that section uh, evoked for me and made me nostalgic for is that there is a quotidian and accessible and understandable language through which to speak of emotions and primarily love, you know, which we really lack in English. People are so upfront in these letters, you know, kind of about their feelings and about their desires and about each other's bodies and the sensations that they evoke and they tell each other that. Yeah. You know, and kind of you have letters like kind of, you know, evoking all of that, like. Yeah, it's very Latin. Well, yes, you know, (laughs) uh, uh, I find it very beautiful, you know. Mm. Uh, um, Yeah, kind of people speak their emotions. Sometimes also, you know, uh, a shared set of assumptions that are maybe a bit more dodgy than they think, but they take it for granted and they're quite free in speaking about them. So there's, you know, one incident, one instance, you know, um, I think it might be in Tigres de Papel, where one of the people say, oh, he, he came in with this beautiful woman. You know how it happened? I was like, whoa, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, the kind of beautiful woman that a guy, you know, is just, you know, grateful to be seen in the company of, you can't help showing her off, right? Because you're so lucky to be, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that kind of thing, I think. Yeah, it just feels very open and fluid, you know. I think kind of in English, we censor ourselves more when speaking in those ways, right? Because oh, yeah. it reveals things about you to even think in that way. So I appreciated all of that in the film. Uh, I appreciated all of the ways that they all spoke about each other, about being in love and having sex and, you know, and once having been beautiful or or not beautiful Right. Or, you know, kind of all the drugs that they took together. And yeah, like kind of it's very open, the film. Yeah. The, um, the moment that I it sort of enjoyed the most or, or made me feel the most was when Milo's wife breaks down remembering yeah. him. And it's it, it's it, it's done. It, it's a lot of there's a lot of talking head interviews. And that's that's where that is um, in kind of a conservatory. But also it's intercut with sort of home footage from the 1980s, maybe, of um, the two of them, uh, husband and wife, when they were much younger, uh, kind of playing with each other, you mm. know, teasing each other, that sort of thing. Yes. I can't exactly what, maybe it was about his hair or something, they were teasing yeah. each other. And there's such love in that footage. And and I think it's intercut really brilliantly with, what she, with, with her kind of reminiscing about him and falling apart. Yeah. And... And then she falls apart, and and uh, Ospina, who's interviewing her, extends a hand to console her. And they, and even though he's off screen, she's looking into his eyes, and you can tell. And there's there's so much there's so much meaning there. And then at the end, um, 
she sort of looks to another part of the room mm. to someone else and says was that okay yeah. and, not, and not to say that like, like she was acting of course she wasn't but there's an awareness of the camera's holding which I think is that's an extra level of honesty to it yes these are all filmmakers so yeah, and, yeah. All, and like she's aware that this is going to be a bit of a film yes you know I love the whole section on Mayolo because so you know it begins by basically making the argument that he is you know he is arguably the most important Colombian filmmaker of that period uh uh you see him receiving awards uh, 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 from uh, Ripstein, the Mexican director, and lots of other people. But on the other hand, and you, you see him being young and being quite handsome. And then kind of, you know, you're told all these kind of not terrible things about him, actually. You know, in an American film, they would be terrible. Because basically, you know, they're saying, well, you know, all his life, he began taking smoking weed at 14. He began doing cocaine at 20. You know, kind of as an adult, he drank a half a bottle and a half of vodka a day, you know, and he's snorting all these <laughs> drugs, right? <laughs> and they go, well, and people say, well, it's true, that's what killed him, right? Yeah. He goes, but that's what made him adorable, <laughs> you yeah. know, and tender and sweet, you know, and so charming and so much fun to be with, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, how great, you see, <laughs> kind of, it's true. Yeah, kind of, you know, some people obviously drugs affect very badly, but you know, kind of people take them for a reason. It's because, you know, they, they do do all those things for, pe- for some people. And some drugs do it for some people. Yeah, that kind of, it opens you up. It talks about what you're feeling. It gives you energy, right? And so yeah. on, yeah? And the film talks about all of that, that it did all of that for him, you know? And clearly he was somebody who was, you know, very inventive and very playful. Also undisciplined. You see him having fights, yeah, with his actresses or you know, with his his actors because, you know, he's not giving them the rehearsal. They have to do like, you know, twenty yeah. shots in one night and yeah. Which probably also has to do with budgets and so on. Right? Um, you know, so he turns these twenty shots into one long sequence shot, right? Uh, to kind of make up for the lost time. Um, and you the, the the clips of films that you see are really like seemingly trashy, you know, Z mm. movie vampire films or zombie films or yeah a television series that actually looks awful you know (laughs) um so but it makes but Mayolo comes across as someone very endearing you know very much loved uh um yeah kind of you know I don't know like Columbia's Orson Welles right because he quickly becomes out of shape you know (laughs) Uh, uh, um, and kind of uh, clearly self-destructive, you know, on the other hand, like as the film says, with moments of brilliance. Um, I thought it was really quite wonderful how, you know, the film is partly structured through all of these old friends, like you said, go to Ospina's house and they reminisce, yeah? Yeah. Uh, and you see kind of the entire evening over the course of the film. Like you see, you start off, you see them cooking, and then you see everyone arrive and they have dinner, and then by the end they're they're all drunk, <laughs> drunk, sitting around, yeah. chatting still. I mean, Ospina yeah. says one of the things that struck me. So so. Two things that I suppose are kind of envy on my part, really. The first is that it's not just that they were open and inventive and all of those things, which they really are, and which. You know, I don't take any of the credit away from them. But the, one of the things that facilitates all of it 
is that they all are from bourgeois backgrounds, right? I mean, the amount of times that you hear, oh, we shot, you know, in my aunt's old house here, or, you know, there was like a deserted uh, uh, house, you know, in my family estate, or, you know, the yeah. house that was lent, right? Or we live in the apartment that's my brother's apartment, right? And then you have like this massive apartment <laughs> that appears. Yeah, yeah, there is a class basis to this. Working class or, or peasant Colombians would not have been able to produce that. Mind you, I think, you know, for most uh, poor countries, that would be a given. Yeah, you know, kind of you, mm. if you have to, have, if you need access to a camera or development or film, you can't be a poor person, you know. Uh, well, funny enough, this was something that I thought about Vampires of Poverty, um, which is the short that we both really enjoyed. This is a short from 1977 that is a mockumentary, and, it's, and it kind of satirises uh, the sort of uh, film production crews that would go out onto the streets in Colombia and film people who are genuinely in poverty, homeless, mentally ill, really disadvantaged people, and then sort of sell all these films that they would make to TV mm. and film in uh, Europe and get awards mm. for talking about the honesty of the awful life. You know, and exploit th- these people, basically. And, and what, uh, what Vampires of Poverty does is it shows you what they're filming, but it also shows you sort of behind the scenes what they are like working, saying, oh, follow this guy around, make sure you get the shot, you know, and they're, they're horrible people. They are vampires. But specifically what I'm thinking of that you were discussing there about class is um, right at the very end of Vampires of Poverty, they're filming in... Uh, sort of uh, like a like a kind of shack or or the back of someone's house that a homeless person just lives in. They've got actors there to pretend that they're yeah, the it's homeless not a homeless person. person; it's a poor person's house. Right. Yeah. Um. And, and they've got actors there, um, pretending they're this homeless family or or, or, or uh, poverty stricken family that lives there. And then the guy who actually does live there, kind of a, a black guy with scraggly hair, almost no teeth. Shows up and starts screaming and telling them yeah, off. You can't the buy f- me. <laughs> fuck out of my house. And they try and give him money, and he wipes his ass with it. In a yes. really striking. It's fantastic. Moment. It's so funny. <laughs> and then what happens is he says, "Was that okay?" Rather like the thing I said before. He goes, "Was that okay?" And you realise that he. It, it's an actor doing. He, it. He's acting there. Well, I think I don't think he is an actor, but no. he's been paid to yeah, perform. Yeah, he's a, he's an ordinary person who's been paid to perform this thing. That's right. And so the very very end of the film is um, Ospina, Maiolo, because uh, it's Maiolo's film, Ospina's sound recording, mm. and this actor um, sitting down, and there, and Maiolo is asking him questions about, you know, what do you like about this film that we're making? And it is as himself. They're, not, they're no longer doing the mockumentary. This, mm. is like, this is like a final button on the film to sort of say, no, this is all above board, and we are actually sort mm. of, we're nice people, basically. And... I, I, found, I found that weirdly uncomfortable because they're asking a guy who I think maybe doesn't have the fullest understanding of exactly what they're, what they're doing to kind of explain it to... I, I read it quite differently. So, because though you see Mayolo and Ospina, they are also playing characters, right? I mean, you're not supposed to see them. Not right at that very final shot, though. They're actually talking to him honestly about the film, about the film Vampires of Poverty. I think. I didn't... Get that. I mean, I might be, I might be misremembering, you know, but um, you know, they're clearly, I mean, you know, they're clearly making fun of that type of person who they're playing, 
Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, because they're saying, oh, kind of, let's get this done and let's go to the whorehouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, that's, it so, for, that's it for the majority of the film. But right at the end, what they're asking this guy is, or what he's saying is he's talking about about satirising these people. Like, they are, they, they're kind of lifting the veil at that point and talking about what their aims are with this satire. Yeah. Which is where I think it kind of becomes real. And so the, the, so the kind of weird, the, the di- slight discomfort that I had there was that um, although they definitely mean well, um, there did still seem to be a kind of class thing where they knew what they were doing, exactly. And it's not like they were hoodwinking this guy or anything, but they were asking him questions that he wasn't entirely equipped to answer about the meaning behind the film. Maybe. I mean... You know, I think the film is so interesting because it raises all kinds of ethical dilemmas. Yeah. You know, and there is, it's, it is about poverty porn. You know, it does also raise questions of truth and reality and realism and all of those things because um, you clearly see that um, some of the footage is really documentary. For, I, they are harassing passerbys, mm. right? Uh, you know, and and passerbys are running away from them because they don't want to be filmed in that way. So, you know, they are clearly harassing, really, I think. Right? There are other instances where they're uh, directing what they're seeing. So the old man in front of the church begging for money, they say, shake your tin. Yeah. Right? Um, the kids in the pool. The kids in the pool, which are asked to take their clothes off, right? And, and jump in the pool and get their money. I mean, there are all kinds of ethical issues there. Right? So on the one hand... They're acting it, but on the other hand, they're filming it. And some of the scenes where they're, they, sh- they, sh- they show them giving money to the kids, right? They show that. But actually, you know, the other scenes where they're harassing these poor women, right? Kind of, you know, that is like a real harassing that they're It certainly they're seems filming. to be. Yeah. Yeah. So, so... Um, yeah, so it's it's a film that kind of raises all ethical questions, does so with a, quite a black humor, I think. Mm. You know, very playful. This is what I meant by pinpricking, right? Because a lot of it is also directed at themselves, you know, like kind yeah. of, and and this idea that they are kind of bourgeois, you know, privileged in a, in a in a world with third world poverty, is not something they hide, you know. I no. Mean, Do you think it's something that they come across as very conscious of? I think they are conscious of it. I think they're also, they're very conscious of their privilege, I think. Yeah? Yes. I mean, yes. Um, You know, I think it's no accident that it all begins at the end. Uh, You know, he shows you the pictures of his family, you know, and what it looked like, and that they had a, a color camera, and that they had a swimming pool. And then, you know, he went on to learn filmmaking at... Uh, USC and UCLA I mean you know Mm. to be Latin American to be able to go to afford to study at UCLA and USC in the early 70s late 60s early 70s you have to be very well to do and actually the fact that they're all you know filmmakers or poets or writers or artists you know it's all because they don't have to work (laughs) they don't have to have a job I mean you know as youth, anyway, because obviously, eventually, they had to make a living, right? And, you know, some of them went on to do other things. Some of yeah. them found a living in television. And in fact, one of them says you could make a very lucrative living in television yeah. through all of these skills that we learned, you know, doing these films together. Yeah, got them jobs on television. 
So, but I think, yeah, I think they're very conscious of, of that. I think they certainly are, by the time you see it all started at the end, and then looking back, I wonder whether, uh, that was something that I had questions about, though, watching Vampires of Poverty, I must say. No, I, I think they're very conscious of it. Uh, you see that as well in Tigres de Papel, because, you know, what these films collectively also tell you is that there is a shared kind of Latin American culture which intersects with the culture of the times, which is a culture of revolution, you know, and they say something like May 68th only arrived in 1972 in mm. Cali or something, right? You know, but that is all stuff about revolution, about class, and they're reading Marx, and they're reading Mao, right? And, and they're reading Marti, and they've seen what's happened in Cuba, and yeah, so actually kind of questions of social class, right, uh, is are very much a part of the discourse of the period yes that's certainly true but um but uh yes i I'm, st- I'm still sort of left with with the question of uh how how much they understood and acknowledged their own place in that because the thing is as you say you know that they they were obviously time rich being kids um but they also had opportunity to to do what they did and this is where them. i think the structures are important you know, they had the means yes, that, so, <laughs> to produce. <laughs> um, but I suppose only being, only being, only having sort of gained any familiarity with vampires of poverty, I can't, you know, I can't make any real judgment on, on, um, sort of what they were like more widely as as young mm. people. But um, you know, I, it's 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 sort of there's there's an extent to which I have a feeling of like. As I say, they meant well, and they had they completely have the point, you know, it, uh, of, of who is right and who is wrong in these exploitative documentaries that they satirise. Um, but you know, do they take part in a level of exploitation themselves in making it, as you sort of um, pointed out with the people? I think they're, they're I think they're being very conscientious, you know. So to what extent some things are accessible to them or some things are not, I you know I don't know. Yeah. Right. Um, but I think they are being conscientious in a way, frankly, that, you know, no documentary I can think of of that period is, right? After all, they're telling you that kind of filming poverty is exploitative, mm. really. Uh, you know, and then there are, there, there are strands in, in Cinema Verite where you show what you film to your subjects and get them to approve it and so on, you know. Um, certainly that was, you know, part of the practice in, in some of the um, National Film Board of Canada documentaries. Uh, 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 you know, the Cinema Direct, Cinema Verite uh, documentaries of the period. But I've never kind of seen it as expressed so vividly and so well and so in such a denunciatory fashion. I mean, you know, the guy wiping his ass with a dollar bill yeah. is like very a very powerful kind of uh, image. Um, and, and, I, and it's all, th- you know, I think it is all thought through. Yeah, it's scripted. They have a script for it, really. Uh, and, you know, so I think there's a mixture of documentary, mockumentary in uh, Vampires of Poverty that becomes much more of a mockumentary, you know, uh, in Tigres de Papel, which after all is, you know, uh, an autobiography, a biography or a documentary on an imaginary person, right? Yeah. You know, so it's really like, you know, a mockumentary for sure. So I think they're aware of all of the strands of questions of ethics you know, they're very illiterate, but I think there's a playfulness and a humor and a kind of, uh, um, 
you know, like a, that pinpricking, that kind of self-deprecatory uh, attitude that is immensely appealing, as are the protagonists. I mean, one of the things, you know, that struck me in the film is just how handsome Luis Ospina is, right? You know, yeah? Yeah. Um, yes, kind of, you know, I mean, there's this wonderful shot of him in some film festival, you know, where they say this is the most disgusting waste of money. <laughs> they don't. They've just screened the film. There's a kind of a Q&A with the director and they say, you know, this is the most disgusting waste of money, you know, uh, I've ever seen or something. And he's wearing one of those neon green, you know, jackets that used to be very fashionable in the 80s. Yeah, he looks very 80s, you know, with a tie and everything. And then, of course, he's so funny because he said, you know, he says, well, what do you have to do? He says, well, you know, kind of, I hope it doesn't too, lose too much money because it's the government of Colombia's money. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> so, yeah, and he's, uh, he's got a real authority. Uh, you know, you watch him in all of these interactions uh, uh, in, you know, the dinner scenes. And again, yeah, I think he's very handsome. He stands out because he's taller than everyone else. Yeah. Um, and also he's very quiet. He's clearly like a good listener. Yeah. Mm. He lets other people talk. Yeah. Uh, which I think is kind of, yeah, a very interesting persona. Yeah. And maybe also something, you know, that to be a certain kind of director you need because, you know, you need other people kind of involved in your projects. And Ospina is somebody who, you know, if you look through um, his filmography, large chunks of it are um, uh, documentaries. Well, it's certainly true of uh, interviewers that listening is is key. Listening and also not saying anything for a long time because you're not the person who who is there to be listened to. Yeah. You know, you're there to, to get their answers. And if you leave a silence, the person will want to fill it. And but, that's when you get the best stuff. But it is odd in this film because it's a three and a half hour longer. It's longer than three and a half hours. Uh, yeah, it all began at the end. Yeah, yeah three and a half hours. Um, and actually, it begins autobiographically. So the beginning and the end are about him going into hospital and then him coming out of the hospital. You know, and then the other bits are... Uh, about Acedo, about Mayolo, about the groups of friends. And actually, you only see him, Ospina, as refracted in these people's lives. Mm. Yeah, which I think is very interesting. It's so he's, he's, he only shows you himself insofar as he figures in other people's lives. So on the one hand, he seems very open, right? So for example, you know, you see him naked, right, in the hospital with all his wounds and so on. There's, you know, photos and portraits of him naked, right? So, like, the sense that he's open to, to, to everybody. But actually, unlike, you know, you're told Mayolo's story and Isaiah's story, but his story is absent. And yet, you know, it, it's, it's meant to be autobiographical, right? It all started mm. at the end. Yeah, so, so, so what you see is him in the hospital being, you know, suffering from cancer and, yeah, 
and what that means, looking back, you know, on his life. But really, his look back is an exploration of Aicedo and Mayolo and this whole group of and what this whole group of friends created, which he was an inextricable part of, but which you only see him refracted through his appearances in others' films, mm-hmm. you know, through his reminiscences with other people about other people, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, there's only one moment that feels personal to himself, which is when he talks to his old girlfriend, who, you know, they clearly, you know, had a long relationship with, and then they formed the band, you know, and then she went off with someone else, right? But that's almost kind of the only... Well, apart from the start, where he talks very openly, very, very kind of plainly about his youth and upbringing, you know, that very opening, he talks about himself. Well, he talks about, he talks about his, you know, who he is, his family, what his family did. He doesn't reveal much about himself other than that. And I think it's interesting that in this interview specifically that I'm referring to, it's still, the dialogue is still the woman's who says, I've always been faithful to you. If faithful means, yeah, kind of caring, yeah, and, mm. you know, wanting you to be well and happy. Yeah, like the, yeah, it's a very, huh, uh, interesting <laughs> definition of faithful but he lets her speak he, he himself doesn't say anything yeah you know so I'm just finding that an interesting aspect of the film that's all yeah fair enough okay well you know I, I, like I said I, I, I think what it's about is interesting and I and I feel like I learned a lot I, I think it's a poor film though because God was I bored, and was it? A, it was a trial to get through for me. Really, it was. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Let's be clear: yeah. The Vampires of Poverty is an amazing, astounding film that anyone who's interested in documentary should see. Yeah, and and although it's no longer on movie, um, from what I could tell, uh, it seems to be up on YouTube in various, you know, maybe various people seem to have uploaded it. I don't know whether it has subtitles or anything like that. Obviously, it's Spanish language. Mm. But I think you can find it, right? Yes. Um, I think uh, uh, Tigres de Papel, Paper Tigers, is also a very fascinating uh, examination of, you know, of a culture through this imaginary person. So it's, it's at, one time, uh, at one and the same time an interrogation into form. It's a mockumentary. It's an invented history. But it's an invented history, it's an invented person through which to look at a whole series of ideas uh, that structured culture, not only in Colombia, but across Latin America. So it's an exploration of those sets of ideas as seen through this imaginary person. And that, I think, is also fascinating. Yeah, for anyone who's interested in these issues. I mean, it won't be fascinating to all. Um, I know what you mean about uh, it all began at the end, though I personally, I loved it. I think you just have to give yourself to to that, you know, mm. to that feeling, you know, that the film opens up. I do think um, it could easily have been three separate documentaries, you know? <laughs> I mean, I think it could have been uh, a documentary on Aicedo, easily... It could have been a, a documentary on Mayolo easily, and it could have been about a documentary about these groups of friends who created Hollywood, you know, and made an invaluable contribution 
to Colombian uh, cinematic culture and actually Latin, you know, they inspired uh, kind of Latin American filmmaking, you know, uh, for generations actually, you know, made an in, you know, a really important contribution. I think all of those could have been separate documentaries, <laughs> you know, a slight edit and you could have like, yeah, three different films. Uh, and I think the thing about Ospina himself is a trickier one because he's very reserved. So on the one hand, yeah, he's naked. On the other hand, he's kind of inscrutable, except through the sensibility that comes across in the film, which is very loving, quirky, playful. Mm. Yeah. So I think that aspect of his personality comes across in his work on others. Yeah. But what he reveals about himself as a person through dialogue or whatever is kind of very little. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. And well. and, and a kind of overall a stark um, reminder that uh, entry into the canon of cinema is not solely based on how good your work is, um, but also where you come from. Yes. Uh, what your class is, maybe you know who cares about you, that kind of thing, because. Sort of by any standards, I think you can tell that these people should ha- have a more significant place There's a, it's in also, cinema culture than they do. Thank you for reminding me of that. I think I agree with that. And I also kind of you know want to bring up. There's a wonderful Canadian uh, theorist called Harold Innes, and he wrote this really important book called Empire and Communication. And you know one of the things that he writes about is you know how when you're at the center of empire. Actually, you don't need to know about anything else, right? Because you are the center of empire. Everything comes to you, right? So if you're an American or if you were a Brit, you know, up, up to the war, you actually didn't need to know about anything else, really. Kind of, you know, it was like your way of doing things that was important, right? But it doesn't work the other way, right? Yeah. So, you know, uh, if, if, you're in a, if you're in a colony or if you're on the outer edges of empire, you've both got to be familiar with empire, and you've got to be familiar with your own culture just in order to survive, right? So kind of, you know, somebody in a, in a colony is always working through at least two cultures. And you see that very much in these films because actually they are intimately aware of the broad currents of culture in Europe and America, right? They've seen Truffaut, they've seen Godard, they've seen Hitchcock, you know, they've seen Losey, yeah, they've mm. seen like... Yeah, they know that they know the European and American canon, right? And on the other hand, kind of, you know, they also, yeah, have to be like completely uh, in tune with the main currents in Colombian and Latin American culture in order to, to, to achieve what they did. So, yeah, that kind of dual. There's a, a power inequality, kind of, you know, that's at the very heart of imperial relations. Very good. Okay, this is uh, uh, eavesdropping <laughs> at the movies. Uh, we are on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Spotify. Uh, social media is Facebook and Twitter, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com, where you can hear all of our 200 podcasts. Yes, hurrah for us. This is our 200th podcast. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much for listening. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Here's to another 200 more. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> well, we're not going to go.
convince others if you if you ach yourself. <laughs> <laughs>